Hello, everybody, and welcome to Talking Engagement. I'm your host, Ben Lind, and it is my great pleasure to bring you the very first episode of the show. It's always exciting to launch a new podcast, particularly in an area where there are so many great things happening. So what's this show all about? Well, as you can probably tell from the title, it's about employee engagement, culture, and bringing you all bits of wisdom that you can introduce into your business to drive a first-class employee experience and give your people incredible days at work. First up to dish out the wisdom is head of people at FundApps, Patrick Caldwell. Pat came to my attention after writing a two-part article on LinkedIn. In the article, he lists the 15 lessons he's learned throughout his career, and for me, it was an absolute no-brainer to get him on the show and share the joy with all of you. I had a great time talking with Pat, and I'm sure you'll all get a lot from it. So with no further ado, please welcome Pat Caldwell of FundApps. Okay, so very happy to be joined on the first ever episode of Talking Engagement by Pat Caldwell of FundApps. Pat, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to it. So for anybody who's not familiar with yourself or FundApps, do you want to give us a quick run through of what you do and what FundApps do as well? Sure thing. So I am the head of people at a uh, small bootstrapped scale-up called FundApps. So most people probably are not familiar with us. Uh, We're a SaaS company. We design software for financial institutions all across the world uh, to manage their compliance and regulatory activities. Uh, So entirely bootstrapped, we've never taken any funding, Uh, we have no plans to take any funding, we're in five locations now around the world. Um, we just hit the 60 people mark. Awesome. That's like 50s meant to be like the magical tipping point, right? Absolutely. Where things start to become like a little bit more, I don't want to say structured, but I think kind of everybody sort of tips you that wink when you get to 50 and they go like, ah, oh, so you kind of get what the rest of us kind of get now. Yeah. And that happened so quickly for us that we went from 50 to 60, soon to be 70. And we're talking about hundred very quickly. Um, yeah. So exciting times. So you've been on like quite a... Has it been sort of a, I suppose, a structured period of growth to sort of meet demand and stuff, or have you, has this kind of just organically been coming along? So we've been around now for almost nine years. Um, so it's slightly rare in startup land to ever talk about a nine-year startup that's only 60 mm. people. Um, most of it's because of our bootstrapped model. Um, the last two years for us have really been around catching up to the demand. Uh, so our model at the moment is we grow as the market needs us to grow. Um, so it's almost permanently just-in-time growth and scaling of the company. Uh, in particular, in the last year, we've found there's significant demand for our for our product um, and our service. Uh, there's increasing complexity in the market, and people are more likely to turn to a company like FundApps to help them. Um, so we've had to grow out, in particular, our tech teams, our client service teams, our sales team, just to cater for, for the demand for our product. So lovely position to be in. I was going to say, a very nice position to be in. So I think that... Just for kind of a bit of background, so I came across you uh, on LinkedIn. You'd written uh, part one of an article about kind of things that you'd picked up over the course of your journey in, in people at, uh, at FundApps that, um, I mean, I think I must have seen it shared by about five or six different people on my LinkedIn. So I wanted to um, to get, get in touch with you and hear about that. So sort of... How? What was the inspiration behind writing those those couple of pieces that you did? Like, what made you think, like, right, I'm going to put metaphorical pen to paper and uh, and get it out there? It's it's a funny story actually. So they started off uh, as almost a series of bullet points I put on a personal Notion board. So I've got a Notion board which basically tracks as my journal at work. Um, every time I either think of an idea, have a reflection on something, it's the middle of the night and I've got something that's popped into my brain, I just pop it down in this Notion board and. I very rarely ever go back and look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went back and looked at it probably six or eight weeks ago. 
Um, and there was this almost bullet list point um, where all these lessons that I felt I'd learnt either the hard way or the right way, depending on how you are on how you look at it. Um, and everything were things which I wish I had known maybe two years ago. And then when I started having more conversations with fellow people ops and HR professionals, um, it was almost comforting to know that we weren't in a different boat to anybody else. Despite having different business contexts, different teams, different strategies, different priorities, we still had some of the same kind of pains as a small company, learning what it was like to sometimes double and triple your workforce to expand globally. Um, and we reflected on many of the same lessons. So the idea for the, for the article, when it ended up being a two-piece one, just because there was almost too much content to put in one, um, was to start to share things that we often don't talk about. So everything we often see on LinkedIn is people you know, blowing their own horns and wanting to share all the good stuff that they're doing, when in reality, growing a company, and it's the same at FundApps, is hard. Um, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Very true. Um, so yeah, the idea was just to bring it all together, start to share the things that we often don't talk about with the hope that um, either A, we could start some conversation and share more ideas across companies, or B, people who are earlier in their journey might take comfort in knowing that others before them have experienced exactly the same thing. Do you feel like in HR, maybe over just general business, there is a pressure to sort of always put a brave face on things and always be like that really positive influence inside a business? I think so. Um, it often comes back to wanting to create this brand for your company, wanting to be, especially in small companies, and we're in, we're in the intersection of finance and tech, um, and it's got such a buzz within many industries at the moment. There is almost this, I don't know if it's an expectation, but certainly a, a norm that we're somehow creating things to look really exciting all the time. And there is a lot of exciting stuff, like genuinely everything about FundApps, um, or maybe 80% of FundApps has been really exciting. Um, the other 20% is that uh, there are growth pains and teething pains, and there are things that don't go right. And there are times where you screw something up so bad that you're wondering if you've just made a critical error or you've stopped the business from growing. Um, and we've got to talk about that more, I think. Yeah, I think it's like about kind of like failing forwards and making sure that you're taking the learnings out of it. Absolutely, absolutely. So what, what got you into HR in the first place? I landed accidentally in HR. So I was, I was full committed to becoming a lawyer. Um, I went to law school and realized very quickly that I do not want to be a lawyer. Um, I studied business. I listened to my parents, as every good kid does going through university, um, who said, just try and experience everything. I realized I love marketing, I love finance, I love HR, I love general management. But I became really, really curious with the people psychology and the organizational behavior in businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and I joined a grad program at the time in HR with no expectations that I would ever have a career in HR. I just thought, let's do it. Mm -hmm. That was, oh, that's almost 10 years ago now, which makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it didn't really stop since then. Um, so it was always a curiosity. I think I put in the article that a big disclaimer for me is that I'm not a people person. Mm -hmm. So I find people draining, mm -hmm. um, deep introvert within me, but I'm incredibly passionate and curious about people. I think they're very different, different things. Um, and that drove me to start exploring the role that people and culture and even things like workforce planning and strategy can play within a growing business like FundApps. At one point I left it out of frustration. I went back to uni, I studied finance, I went into a commercial role, um, just wasn't enjoying it anymore. Yeah. And then it wasn't until probably just over two years ago now, I had a coffee with our current founder and CEO, Andrew. We shared a love for the fact that HR seems to be going in a slightly different direction to what it has in the past. 
Um, we shared lots of similar stories in the past of things that frustrated us and almost this shared vision for what it could be in a company like FundApps, which at the time was 20-something people. Um, and that was the start of this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting sort of thing to, to touch on in the sense that it was something that had come about, I suppose, sort of more out of, I guess, curiosity than anything else initially. Um, there'd been some time put in to sort of honing it as a skill and sort of implementing it inside a business, then leaving it for a couple of years and then actually coming back to it. And I think that that kind of brings me on to my next sort of two-part question, I suppose, which is what, I guess, the sort of where do you see it going? And then were, what were, let's say, a couple of the more let's say antiquated processes that might have been there maybe 10 years ago yeah. or so like what was it that you saw that was a little bit frustrating and what is it that excites you now bringing you back in I think I was very fortunate early in my career to work for some of the most amazing HR leaders still to date that I've ever had the chance to work with um, they were people who truly believed in this concept of business partnership and that you're working side by side with leaders and people you were not a back office function. You were not there to do transactional operational activities. You were genuinely part of driving growth and value in a company. Um, and when I left HR, it was mostly on the basis of a big business mentality. I worked for an amazing company at the time, but it just didn't suit my natural style, which was not about the policies, not about the compliance or the, the legal side of things. Um, and I needed a, a, a fresh start. Um, I know though, even though I was fortunate enough to work with leaders who were amazing at the time and really echoed, I think, almost where HR is still going, um, I've had plenty of exposure to companies where that's not the view of HR. It tends to be more back office, it tends to be firefighting, it tends to be going to the principal's office if you've done something wrong. Uh, lots of paperwork, you do the onboarding journey and actually people don't see you as anything more than uh, operational support. Um, I think I found at FundApps that uh, PeopleOps is viewed as a critical part of the business. Um, our strategy is the business strategy. Um, we're integrated in with the growth of the company, with our product strategy, with where our tech infrastructure needs to go. And it resonates so strongly across each of those teams that it genuinely no longer feels like um, this back office or support function where we're a critical pillar of, of our growth strategy. And I think that's ultimately where, where we will probably see HR go. I think that's right. I mean, something that I've, I mean, granted, I've, I've not really been around this industry for far too long, but something that I have enjoyed seeing is, is the shift in attitudes. It is like sort of seeing that people are now, they're not just a, they're not just a cog in a wheel. They're not just a, like a function that we're looking to get, you know, an extra five or 10% out of. And that is somebody who's engaged or whatever. They're more now seen as, you know, individuals with dreams and passions and we want to now harness those and you know albeit yes use them for the mutual progression of the business and the individual but there's no reason that somebody's external passion can't become encapsulated inside a business that makes them happier in the business more productive for example um, I think that this is probably I don't know if this is a strange question to ask well both of us given given our backgrounds are inherently technology and, and startup-y, scale-up-y, that kind of thing. But obviously there has been a huge influx of technology into into the sector, well, into all sectors to be fair, but into HR as well. Do you do you think this is a good thing? Do you think it might be going a little bit too far? Um, I think it can go too far, ultimately, on how you use technology. I think it's ultimately a good thing because the purpose of it as an enabler to what you're actually trying to achieve. Um, so we are a small tech company. We have a very... 
healthy affinity with different tech platforms. We, we use various different platforms across the board, um, but we never rely on it to deliver the value that we want to create in the company. So it's kind of like because you own a, because you own a cell phone doesn't mean you're great at communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it has a role to play to either help make something more efficient or streamlined, to automate a process that was otherwise manual and time-consuming, to free up uh, HR professionals to focus on more value-adding activity, to spend more time coaching, um, or to ultimately make something more accessible for everyone, given we're increasingly going to more remote teams and more globally spread teams. So for us, technology's always played a critical role, but a very limited role. Um, we use our platforms in a way that either helps to automate or streamline or make it more accessible. Um, and then we use the outputs of that. We use the data of it to actually do the value-adding decisions or to help with coaching or inform what we want to do. No, that, that's heartening to hear because I think that for me, it's, it's about you'd be probably foolish not to use everything that's there at your disposal, right? But it should still be, um, it should only be a facilitator, I think. I think that... You know, the technology is only going to get you so far, as you say, but I think what what I'm hearing you say there is that uh, it's still people dealing with people up to a point, you know, yeah. like it would have to be a pretty, you know, what's the word, like ground shattering algorithm for any HR platform to say like, okay, this individual has given me these specific comments or feedback or whatever it might be, here yeah. is a tailored plan for them. I think, you know, you can, you can conceive of a formula that says, you know, three sevens equals schedule a one-to-one or whatever, but it's really kind of getting to the root of that, getting under the skin of kind of why they're feeling the way they're feeling and not just scheduling something. For sure. And, and people are inherently like messy, complex individual beings. So when we talk about engagement surveys, recruitment experience, everything, we're trying to create this sense of engagement and belonging. Um, the technology opens the door for you to understand more and become curious and then it's still reliant upon a really good people ops team, um, a culture uh, that genuinely wants to do something about it, leadership who are committed and being ambassadors to it. And if you put all of that together with technology, you're probably going to end up with a pretty good solution. If you just rely on the technology, then it becomes very diluted. I can see that. So in the article, one of the points that resonated the most with me was point number 13. I think it was water your plants, <laughs> right? I was wondering if you could just unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, I um, I don't know if that's a good analogy to use with water the plants or not. It was the best one that, that came to mind. And it was an excuse which I got called out by a mentor for something that I said uh, last year. So it's probably almost 12 years or 12 months ago now, um, where I said, well, of course, we're not that good at development or feedback. We're a startup. And I got called out by a mentor to say, well, why does that matter? If you're 10 people, 50 people, 2,000 people, why is the size of your company um, ultimately determining whether you can or can't be, be good at something like development. Um, and it got me thinking a lot about development and what's within your control. So we are now 60, soon to be 70 people. Um, we have cravings from lots of people to start to have more stretching experience, to start to be exposed to different things, to start to get more holistic feedback from others, to start their own development journey. And there's no reason why, because we're small, we can't do something within our remit and within our context to, to design that. Um, and it was a lesson that I learned the hard way in this case because that was the excuse I was using. And it wasn't until people at FundApps called me out and said, well, not good enough. What are we actually going to do? Um, and the first thing we did was really focused on starting to give each other more feedback. 
we often look to leaders to be the ones to give everyone feedback but in reality actually in any role you want to know how you're going with various different relationships how you're working across teams not just your leader but it becomes a little bit more 360 for people so we created a peer feedback process um, we use a tech platform to do it um, again that's just the enabler behind it we created something that was very very simple um, we took I guess some learnings from a 360 process that many of us had been through in the past you're used to getting asked 100 questions a couple of free text comments and the things that everyone goes to straight away are the free text comments um, we almost skip all the scores we skip the spider graphs and we want to know actually what's the brutally honest direct candid anonymous feedback that we're getting well, that's where the voice is coming from that's Absolutely. that's where the real story is being told you know Absolutely. you can you can get so far with sort of refuting or confirming a, a, an existing hypothesis but when you really have that free text that's that's that person speaking uh, you know assuming obviously there's caveats like they need to believe in the confidentiality of the process they need to i suppose be invested enough to have an opinion first and foremost but once those two sort of precursors have been met that's them really making themselves heard absolutely and we often don't get that forum to be able to be brutally honest but in a very constructive way so we created a four-question survey, um, the four simplest questions we could think of that would help structure feedback. Um, we basically asked anybody who's doing this peer feedback survey to talk about what this person should stop doing, start doing, and continue doing, um, which is a fairly well-renowned feedback model, but one of the simplest ones we could find, baby steps for us as a company. Um, and then we linked in our values. So the key bit for us to help bring our values to life is to understand what it means day to day to actually live our values. We can put fancy things on the walls and that's great, um, but what does it look like in terms of in your role day to day, how are you actually raising the bar? How are you being more transparent in your role? Um, so we put that together. We started our first peer feedback process. Um, we did some coaching around what good feedback looks like. Again, we don't just rely on the tech side of things. Um, and we started implementing that. And it's been fascinating because if you genuinely want to grow, I always believe you've got to understand yourself first, um, especially before you can start to understand others, start to lead others. You have to know um, what's working and, and what's not. Um, and it was one of the biggest value adds we've just introduced probably in the last six months um, was the ability for people to give brutally honest, constructive feedback across teams to different people and then have a one-on-one -on -one chat with a leader around that feedback, what you're going to do about it, what your strengths are that you can really amplify in the company, and maybe a couple of things you need to work on. I think there's been sort of a real lean in to sort of the giving and receiving of feedback. And I mean, I think we probably, I, I started a, a startup a couple of years ago, and one of the sort of the buzzwords that was going around the office was radical candor, right? Mm -hmm. You hear everybody talk about that. And I think that when that's not, perhaps that when that's not understood properly or not applied properly, I think people just use that as an excuse to perhaps be too blunt, if you know what I mean. Like they might just want to use it as not an attack specifically, but they yep. just want to give you some blunt, you know, like just dump some feedback on you and kind of go, haha, radical candor, mm -hmm. and you have to just deal with it. Then yep. it's a maturity problem if you're not ready for mm -hmm. that. So I think that the question I would be interested in is sort of what sort of work's been going in on the front end when it comes to sort of getting people ready to receive that feedback. So sort of a little bit of work around, I guess sort of emotional intelligence, perhaps perhaps maturity, and, and it probably is a nicer way to say that, but yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know what's gone in there. I think it's a misconception when, people, when it, we assume that everyone wants feedback. Um, feedback can be a gift with the right mindset. If you're ultimately not open to feedback though, radically candid feedback is going to hurt, um, and it may do more damage than good. 
So genuinely, we've tried to build it, build it into our career development discussions that if somebody is um, coming to that point where they really want to get a more holistic sense of self um, and starting to know what their relationships are like and what their communication style is like, um, we, we open up the ability to do peer feedback for them. So we haven't done it for everyone across okay. the company. There were two things we added to it to kind of supplement it. We were well aware that it can become a soapbox um, sometimes. Uh, the first one is we helped people structure feedback with another very simple model. So we said if you want to give uh, Pat feedback because sometimes he interrupts you in meetings or something like that, um, it's not good enough to say Pat is rude and disrespectful in meetings because that feedback is not meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, what it is good feedback is to say um, we recently had a meeting where I was presenting my opinion, Pat interrupted me, came over the top, and actually it made me feel like I didn't really have a chance to voice my own um, and it's this situation behavior impact thing, very common model. Um, and we started to use a lot of examples for that. We put it in some of the documentation before you do the peer feedback. And we really wanted people to structure feedback in a way that was using real examples, making observations rather than casting judgments. The second thing we did was a development program that we have for every single person at FundApps called Insights. Um, one of the things we struggle with with feedback is finding the right language to put around the things that we're observing without wanting to come across harsh or too soft or anything like that. And uh, Insights basically talks about communication styles and preferences and it uses colors to do it in a very simple way. Um, and it meant that people could start to frame the feedback in a way which became a universal language for fund apps, but in a safer way. So if I wanted to give feedback to um, a peer of mine that they can be uh, particularly direct in a certain way that uh, cuts off others from giving their opinion or maybe they push too hard for uh, results instead of recognizing a good process behind it. Um, I could use the insights language um, which uses the colors to articulate what my observations are in a safer way than what you would otherwise do without it. Okay. So we built both of them together built it into the peer feedback. We only open up peer feedback as part of development discussions um, and we only do it where the leader is genuinely convinced that person is both ready and hungry for that kind of feedback. That makes sense. So in terms of um, something else, I suppose, yeah, peer peer is, is peer, peer recognition. So you talked a little bit about values there and putting them on the wall. You will often hear other companies will have like little write-out postcards and, you know, it was put to me yesterday and I... I do slight, I do kind of agree um, that because someone's actually written it out and taken that trouble that it maybe means a little bit more but I, I think one of the most commonplace ones is to have it to be able to recognize say six company values or whatever and then leave like some anonymous peer-to-peer recognition just mm-hmm. like excellence or customer centricity you can just drop somebody a message and say you killed it in that meeting today or that was a great presentation so is that something that you make open to like the team 24 7 as it were Yes, we do. So I, I like the idea of a handwritten note. The only reason we don't do it is because we are so obsessed on the environmental side of things uh, with okay. not wanting to use anything that's printed. Mm-hmm. Um, we resort to a tech solution to do it for us. Um, what we found is that everyone wants the ability to be able to give feedback to people. Um, if we don't provide something that is a platform that might make it more accessible for them, it can be very difficult getting people to actually go and have that conversation. Increasingly, our teams are now split geographically, different time zones, remote workers, um, so it's not as easy to walk up to um, you know, Ben's desk and say, hey, I just noticed in that meeting you did an amazing job, like that was uh, an epic example of raise the bar, awesome work on that. Yeah. That's a lot more difficult now when you start to add barriers to doing it. 
So we resorted on the tech side. Um, the values piece of it is probably the most critical piece. The ability for any single person in our company, 24 hours a day, to go into a platform, to be able to recognize a peer, to assign them a, we've got like mini rewards that we do as part of it. Cool. Basically throw kudos to somebody, recognize it, it gets posted uh, in a public place that we see up on our TV screens around all of our offices. Um, and it means that it's like this epic pat on the back moment, feel good about yourself, but we're not relying on leaders, HR to do that for us. Um, so we've embedded it to the extent where my role in it is basically redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened before I came into FundUps and it's still happening now. Excellent. I mean, I think that it's a lot more meanif- meaningful when it comes to people who are sort of at the coal face, mm-hmm. just like you are, you know, or if it's like somebody who really like maybe might not have a inherent understanding of what your day-to-day is like and they've still kind of piped up to have their say to say like this is how you impacted me today or whatever like I think that's really nice yeah it's made a it's made a world of difference for us it's been around for a couple of years um, and it is a equally good feeling when the person you're sitting next to even through a tech platform even up on a tv screen is able to pick up on something that was awesome as it is when your your leader pulls you aside and says look that hasn't gone unnoticed great work so switching lanes here a little bit, you talked in the article as well about um, an implicit association test that you guys did. Would you be, can you just kind of expand on that for everybody? Because I thought that was a really interesting thing to sort of bring up in that context. So we did it in the context of um, our focus on diversity and inclusion. So our uh, big focus as a company is that um, our, we want a really inclusive workplace that encourages anybody from any background all around the world to want to come and work for us which means that we had to make some changes, some deliberate training, some focus areas in our company to help um, build that sense of inclusion. One of the things we looked at was our recruitment process, um, and we looked at the various biases that exist within a recruitment process. And we wanted to bring it to the foreground so that people could understand that being biased is not a bad thing. Um, It's a human thing. It's actually impossible to not be biased. Um, And we shouldn't be scared of talking about it. The implicit association test, I think, has been around for almost decades now, um, and it was built by a kind of community of universities, um, and it's available online and it's free, and we used that just as a trigger, so we ran uh, almost a mini training session or a learning session for anybody involved in recruitment across FundApps to start to explore the concept of bias, and one of the safest ways we could do it was um, obviously reflecting on ourselves, um, but also to have a test that might trigger some things that otherwise could be a little bit provocative if we thought about it ourselves. Um, when we first ran it, myself and our CTO at the time, um, we decided to present what our biases were. Um, and I remember sitting with a group of people, I'd done the test, and I said, actually, I've worked in people ops now for eight or nine years. Um, I've done plenty of recruitment. I'm not an expert, but I've done enough of it. Um, and I have three very, very strong biases according to this test, which the first time I uh, considered those biases, I was a little bit defensive. Um, It basically said I have a a strong preference towards LGBTI candidates, I have a strong preference towards women, um, and I have a strong preference against people who are considered old. Um, And and all three of them I took and said, no, that's impossible, That's, that's not me. Until I reflected on it and said, actually, maybe some of that comes out in a little more unconscious ways. And to do that, we need to talk about it. So we brought it to the teams. CTO and I both shared our unconscious, well, maybe subconscious biases. um, And we had a very, very honest conversation around what could we do in a recruitment process that recognizes that everyone has bias, but helps us to manage them. 
um, we looked at uh, inviting more peer-to-peer -peer, uh, involvement in social interviews to understand the culture contribution of people. We looked at uh, decision-making that never sat with one person. Um, we did everything we could using that implicit association test. There's nothing more than a trigger um, just to help us make systemic changes to a recruitment process that otherwise we wouldn't have picked up on potentially for years. I imagine that's got to be like quite confronting to be met with the, these kind of subconscious or unconscious biases that um, you know may well have taken place during previous bouts of recruitment and stuff. And I don't know sort of what that what was did it give you sort of pause and did you kind of reflect on some hires that you'd made and sort of did it kind of give you and then you have to go back like, oh but that was no they're still the right person for the job. I'm sure they're still good. It it made me second guess uh -huh. even within fund apps people that I'd hired. Um, it also made me second guess how that might translate to decisions outside of recruitment. If we were doing promotion decisions, performance conversations, how I might perceive uh, behaviours in the workplace. There's a, a massive stereotype around age relating to like technology affinity and so forth. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was just, a, again, a very, very almost humble reflection, recognising that A, I am human, B, I'm going to make mistakes, C, I've probably made heaps of them already. Um, but the most important thing is, well, now that I know about it, I can do something about it. And I'm going to lean on the people around me to hold me to account that if they think some of my bias might be playing out, um, then I expect them to call me on it. And I'll promise them the same. That's a really, like, mature way of, of, getting, in, of getting into stuff like that. I think, like, it's very, it's a word that gets used a lot these days, but very progressive, I think. Um, so I'm going to finish up with two quick questions for you, Pat. So the first one is, um, if you were going to distill the 15 points that you gave us into say, we'll go, we'll go one or two like really key ones that sort of any business, any HR person, people person listening to this could implement into their business, what would those two be? And then the second question, just because it's a bit of fun is, do you think that HR needs a rebrand to something else, yes or no? And if yes, what do you think that could be? So the first question, one or two things. I was told when I wrote the article it was already too long. Uh, with 15 so how I get it to one or two I'm not sure but there's one which there's definitely two but there's one which um, was probably the most profound lesson that I've learned along the way and seems to be the one that resonates with the most people which is this idea that done is better than perfect um, and we see it in a small company I come out of very very large businesses where you're given so much time and freedom and engagement across various different forums to get an idea so perfect that you can roll it out to 30,000 people and you know it's going to work. Um, and when you walk into a company which at the time was 20-something people and, and now 60, um, you don't have that freedom necessarily to perfect something. But also the value is not in perfecting it. The value in a lot of cases is putting something in place and then being uh, comfortable enough in your own skin and with your own team that you know it's not probably going to work perfectly but you're happy to iterate it as you go. So we had it with our parental leave. Um, we've done three different versions of parental leave in the last two years to get it to the point now where we think it's pretty darn good until such point that maybe early next year we realize we actually could do a lot better on that and that becomes parental leave number four. Um, we've had it with the peer feedback. We've had it with the performance side of things. Uh, we've had it with recruitment. Yeah, the implicit association test is also one of them. Um, so getting very, very comfortable with the idea that the most value you might be able to add a company is getting something in and iterating while it's live, as opposed to spending months and months and months trying to perfect an idea in the background. Um, the second one I think is uh, the most uh, value add, uh, I guess, 
lesson that we've been able to implement at FundApps, which I think has made the biggest difference, which is invest in leaders before you think you need to. Um, I think I put it as one of the first ones on there because it was front of mind. Um, there is a point, I think, with the 50-person company that you start to realize that everything just becomes a little bit harder. We discovered much earlier than that, um, if you're growing the role of a leader, especially when you've got a small founder team or a CEO or something like that, everyone is used to reporting to the CEO, it becomes too big and unmanageable. Um, leaders are one of the most critical steps for communication, for driving growth, for getting alignment between teams, for building the culture. Um, and I wouldn't be effective in my role now if we didn't have a leadership group here who was equally as passionate about people and culture than that I am. Um, so the biggest one for us that, you know, we did it fairly early, but we probably could have done it even earlier. Um, if you're not thinking about leaders, now is the time to do it because they are an absolute godsend when you get the picture right um, when you hit that 50, 60, 70 person mark. The rebranding of HR is a fun one. So do I, do I think... I'll be blunt, do I think HR needs to be rebranded? No, only by name. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've seen a couple of HR functions which have become people fun functions and people ops functions, but are still grossly ineffective and not providing the value to the business. Um, I think regardless of the branding, there needs to be a mindset change within HR. That's um, obviously fitting for that context in the company. Um, it might be very possible that that company just needs operational support in the background and that's okay. Um, I remember learning from the Australian Army that they don't have a HR function. They instill it into their leaders and they expect their leaders to cover everything that's HR. Um, so I think the rebranding they did was, well, they don't have this fancy business partnership guide by the side HR function. They don't even need one. Or maybe they don't know if they need one. <laughs> um, so I think the rebranding needs to take place in mindset, which is making sure the people ops function is inherently part of the business, a pillar of the strategy, um, recognizing that without people in the right culture, your business is always going to be diluted in effectiveness. Um, and if that means for as a symbol that it needs to change from HR to people, that's not such a bad thing. Um, but there are plenty of functions doing awesome work that still call themselves HR. Substance over staff. I hope so. I hope so. In, uh, in, in a former role, HR was known as human remains. Dude. So, <laughs> and human relics. I think we had two of them. Um, in which case, maybe the symbol of changing it to a people function or culture function might be helpful for them. But at the end of the day, it's the mindset and the people. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it on that. Um, Pat, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. For anybody who wants to hear more about yourself or more about FundApps, what are some ways they can get in touch? Easiest way will be to uh, connect on LinkedIn. Um, I connect with everyone. We share everything transparently um, from the stuff that works to the stuff that didn't. Um, if you're keen to know more about FundApps, on our website, fundapps.co, uh, is the easiest way. We have a blog there, uh, same value of be transparent. We put everything up regardless of what we think people are going to think of us as a result. Incredible. Pat, thanks again. Thanks very much. Cheers. All right, then. That was Pat Caldwell of FundApps. And I think in particular, what he said about being aware of our own subconscious biases is something that I'll definitely be carrying forward with me. And uh, just a massive thanks again to Pat for being the very first guest on the show. To hear more from Pat, head over to Patrick Caldwell on LinkedIn or fundapps.co for more info on the company. 
So that's it from me for now, everyone. But I'm going to be back very soon with another episode. Uh, this show is put together entirely by me as a passion project. So if you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate a like, a share, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. You can follow me on Twitter at BenjaminL1ND. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Benjamin Lind. Or you can email into the show with any comments, feedback, or guest suggestions. We're at talkingengagementpod at gmail.com. Thank you all again for listening, and until next time, stay engaged. Stay engaged.